So we've been in 1 Corinthians 15, and we've been reflecting on the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And last time we considered this phrase, two weeks ago, as an Adam, all die. What that means to have all died in Adam. And what does it mean that when Christ comes, he's going to conquer every satanic authority and power and influence that seek to dominate this world. And in the next part of the letter, this chapter, Paul is about to go into a very deep dive into the certainty, reality, and the actual mechanism, almost like a methodological treatment, on what does it mean to be risen from the dead for us. He'll deal, he'll deal in depth with questions about our transformation and the kind of new reality our glorified bodies will enter into. It's metaphysical, it's fascinating, it's stirring, it's confusing and challenging. But none of that is going to happen without his coming, his second coming. And this is why Paul proceeds in his explanation This is why Paul announces that our our resurrection proceeds with this phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and 23. He says that it's at his coming and after his coming that those who belong to Christ will rise. He says in verse 22, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So last week we talked about what does it mean that he's going to destroy rules and authorities and power. But, but th- this issue of his coming, his second coming, is what I want to talk about today. And I want to engage a very basic question with you all that I need to ask myself. Are you hoping in his coming? Are you hoping in his second coming? For 2,000 years, we have been waiting. Do you wrestle with that? I wrestle with that. Some of us might fear becoming like Linus and Sally in this cartoon I watched as a kid, which I'll probably watch again soon. It's The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Does anybody remember The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown? It's brilliant. Linus is full of this earnest zeal, and he tries to get Sally to buy in to his faith in The Great Pumpkin. The Great Pumpkin will appear on Halloween And he will reward those waiting for him with all kinds of candy. You don't have to go out through the neighborhoods in these weird costumes. Just wait for the great pumpkin. He's coming. So we got to go out to the pumpkin patch. So Linus takes Sally out into this pumpkin patch. And they start waiting dutifully. And first, you know, Linus is everything to Sally. So she just trusts him implicitly. You know, all the scoffers and mockers, she defends him. He's coming, you'll see. But at some point, all these kids keep getting all this candy and she's got nothing. And she finally realizes she's horrified. There's, this is a scam. There's no candy coming for her. There's no great pumpkin. She's missed waiting 
for the great pumpkin with this charade. And man, she lets Linus have it. And he sulks away in shame. Do you fear that that's what the second coming could become to you? Do you secretly fear your, are you being sold a well-meaning bill of goods? 2,000 years, I can struggle. Or another possibility, does it, does it even function on your radar much? And this is another struggle I can have. Being so caught up in the cares and anxieties of this life that, life, that the second coming isn't so much an issue of doubt as it is irrelevance. Mortgages, jobs, car payments, relational difficulties. Or, or another possibility. This is, a, this is one that I, I think is real for me. In, in, in our pursuit, our, our earnest pursuit of God in this life, and our relationship with him in this life, we simply don't dwell much on the fullness and the rest and the peace that is still to come. The, the fullness and the peace and the rest that we can't get now, no matter how hard it comes in little fits and starts, but the, the perfection is not here. As James says, in this life, James the apostle says, we all stumble in many ways. That will not stop. And so we fight that stumbling and we, we, we just don't dwell much on the fullness and the rest and the peace that is coming. So none of this is a small thing. Paul is, in this very letter, he's fighting with all his apostolic might because their hope in the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection with him is, is so important. And 1 John 3 puts it this way. This is why it's so important, among other reasons. He says, beloved, now, now we are children of God. It, but it has not appeared yet as to what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. And note what John is saying here. He, he's saying we don't understand it all now. We do have new life in Christ, but we cannot possibly imagine what that day, what that transformation will be like when he returns, when he appears, John says. But it will mean something incredible. When Jesus returns, we will see him. We will see him. We will meet him face to face at his return. And in that process of seeing him, meeting him face to face, we will be dramatically transformed into something so glorious, so unfathomable to us now that this beautiful metaphor God gives us of this, I believe, of the worm to the butterfly will seem tame. We will be perfect in every way. Perfect in glorious form. I believe physically there's going to be a perfection that's going to be, that's going to be an adornment of the spiritual perfection. And more importantly, we will be perfect in soul, perfect in love, perfect in purity, perfect in trust, perfect in peace, perfect in joy. 
And then John says this, everyone now, he's talking now, everyone now who has this hope fixed on him, on Jesus or in him personally, purifies himself now. Everyone who has this hope, the hope of Christ's return and our being made perfect like him at his appearing, our confidence that we're going to make it to the end and that Jesus is going to finish what he started at his appearing, everyone who hopes in Christ this way, there is a purification that is taking place as we continue to hope in that. There is a cleansing and a healing and a renewing power that comes from the Holy Spirit as we fix our gaze on our hope to come. This world and its cares and desires and troubles begin to lose their grip as we recognize more and more that this present age of futility and disorder and brokenness is not going to have the final say. It is not going to conquer us because it cannot conquer our king. He is going to conquer it. And we will conquer it with him. But we don't see that now. Now we wait. But God is clear. He calls us to do more than wait. He calls us to hope. He calls us to hope. Romans 8, Paul says it this way. In this hope, that is the hope of our final transformation at the second coming. In this hope, we are saved. But now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? We don't have it yet, Paul's saying. But if we hope for it, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We groan right now. We wait groaningly because that hope that we're longing for, that completion in Christ that we, we long for, completion in our hearts to be fully all, all of his and to see this world fully belong to him and restored. So we're called to do more than know that Christ is coming to raise us. We're called to do more than agree that it's, that it's orthodox doctrine and we want to stand on that truth. We're called to hope. To place our heart's hope and to fix our heart on this return of our Savior. And so this morning, Knowing that 2,000 years is a long time to wait and knowing that the voices in our culture are increasingly, as Peter says, scoffing and mocking at this idea of his coming. I want to I mention just a few things that I hope will help you hope in this promise. Things that have helped me and I pray they will help you. <clears throat> and two main things. The first is the sovereignty of God over human history the sovereignty of God over human history, and number two is simply the faithfulness at the core of God's being. The faithfulness at the core of God's being. First, the sovereignty of God over human history. I read someone recently say, some CEO or something, uh, trust is built in drops and lost in buckets. Trust is built in drops. For centuries, drop by drop, prophet after prophet, prophecy after prophecy, God has been building trust with any who would inquire as to whether he is indeed who he says he is and whether his Messiah really is Jesus Christ. To any who would pay attention and inquire 
about this book, the Bible, and its supernatural power. God has been drop by drop seeking to build trust. In Isaiah 46, the Lord proclaims, remember this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old and what I've done before. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says, remember this. I do what I say I will do. I did what I said I would do, and I will do what is still yet done that I have said I will do. At least 20% of the Bible is predictive prophecy. Is God saying, I am going to do these things. And the New Testament is again and again explicitly calling the Old Testament to testify that God has indeed brought to pass what he promised. How often if you look through the Gospels, you'll see the phrase, phrases like, thus were the scriptures fulfilled. Or he said this or did this so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. As I've said before in the last few weeks, as I said back in our, in our Advent series, the word of God for centuries has before, again and again and again, predicted with absolute accuracy the first coming of Christ, his work and his person. This truth that God has told us the end from the beginning and brought to pass all of his purposes came vitally home to me in my first year or two as a believer in college. Forgive me if you've heard this one before. The older I get, the the more I forget what things I have said to you before. But it's okay for me to remind you of these things and for us to remind each other of God's faithfulness and his faithfulness in our lives. But after a dramatic, joy-filled conversion in my 20th year of life, after 12 or so years of terrible hopelessness, I felt as if I was born again, and I truly believe I was born again. But soon after this, I felt like I was being led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. It was a bipolar experience, almost. And and just as he, the devil, said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, so it seemed to me that the devil was being allowed to say to me, if he really is the son of God. And I was filled with the most deeply and persistently painful doubts I'd ever had. I've, I've said this before. I, I really do believe it was, it was the Lord allowing Satan to tempt me with tremendous doubts, and it was spiritual warfare. It was pronounced, persistent. It was harassing. It was oppressive. It was extremely discouraging. I walked around my campus like a zombie some days, just feeling the sense of the removal of this incredible blessing and the presence of these great doubts. And day after day, week after week, as my faith seemed like it was being torn into tatters, I began to sense that I needed to start facing these doubts 
with the word of God and start learning what his word said about the ideas that were attacking me about Jesus Christ. And I experienced God's miraculous faithfulness again and again. As I had Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, testify to me that one would come who would justify the many and make atonement for the sins of the people and that he would do it with his own flesh pierced, whipped, and wounded. 700 years before Christ breathed a breath on this earth. I had the prophet Daniel tell me five centuries ahead of time that the temple, which when Daniel wrote was utterly destroyed, would be rebuilt and then centuries later would be destroyed again. And I had Daniel tell me that only after the Messiah appeared to Israel and was himself killed would that temple be destroyed by the Gentiles. I had Zechariah Tell me, centuries early, that one day the Jewish people would look upon the one they had pierced and they would mourn for this one whom they had pierced, who Zechariah, in his use of pronouns, makes clear is also God. And they will mourn for God, the one they have pierced, as they mourn for a firstborn son. And that through that mourning they would receive a spirit of grace. I had Micah tell me five or so hundred years beforehand that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. I had David a thousand years or so before, 900, maybe a thousand years before, tell me of the death of the Messiah at the hands of murderers who would cast lots for his garment, who would pierce his hands and feet all before crucifixion was invented, who would give him vinegar to drink, who would stretch out his bones out of joint, and mock him as he hung there and cried out to God. I could go on and on and on. I found my little Bible from those days last night, pulled it off the shelf. It's just filled with all these, you know, notations and twenty-five references. Not not because I was some great, loving, amazing person who just you know, was so dutiful about his quiet times. Not at all. I didn't even know what a quiet time was in those days. I was desperate to not spiritually die and go to hell. I was desperate, and all I had was desperation and God meeting me in my desperation. But God has given us so much to tell us he is in control of history. He is in control of history if we will but seek him out on it. In, in the prophets, you will see God tell Israel again and again of their impending doom before Assyria, warn Judah of her exile to Babylon, promise her rescue by Cyrus the Mede long before any of it ever happens. Daniel has been called the man who saw tomorrow because he did. Daniel was exiled to Babylon, but in his prophecies given to him by Gabriel and God and his dreams and visions, he sees a succession of empires from Nineveh, the, the empire that captured him, to Persia that follows, to Alexander the Great and the Greek generals who divide his empire all the way to Rome and possibly beyond. And the fact that Daniel wrote all these things in a style of language that we now know was dead by the time many of these events actually took place only solidifies the evidence 
of divine power working through him. You don't write today in Latin because nobody reads Latin. <laughs> and so if you find a scrap of paper that looks very old and it's all written in Latin, well, you're going to have to time it to the right place. So Daniel wrote in a dead language for the events, for so many of the events that actually took place after he predicted them. And certainly by the time the Greek Old Testament was written, the Septuagint, Christ was already, was barely born and, and these things that happened in AD 70, the Messiah coming and be cutting off. My point is there's no way Daniel wrote this post to Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, we see Jesus not only fulfill so many of these promises, but he adds to them. And this is where we begin to get into what, what Donna was, was prophesying about today that just was a beautiful thing to hear. In the week of Jesus' crucifixion, he foretells in, in several of the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 24 is the longest version of it. Jesus foretells a general, he predicts a general vision of human history, wars, disasters, natural and the spread of the gospel to the world, the persecution of the church, all culminating in his return. But within this broader version of world history, the Lord makes some very specific prophecies. He foretells the destruction of the temple, as Daniel did, and he says it will occur within a generation of his hearers. This generation will not pass away, he says, and that temple is going to go down. And of course, it, it did occur. 40 years later in 70 AD before his generation had died out. But of this destruction, Jesus says this in Luke 21. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And he's talking about the Romans who will come in 70 AD to destroy the city. And he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance. To fulfill all that is written. They will fall by the edge of the sword. He's speaking of the Jewish people. He says, they will fall by the edge of the sword. And be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. These are the words of Jesus Christ. He says there is a time of the Gentiles that is nations outside of Israel. And this phrase, this time of the Gentiles, we'll see a very similar phrase pull up in, pull up in Paul's writing. But, but before we go there, Paul correlates, I'm sorry, Matthew correlates what Jesus says here in Luke with something he says in verse 14 of Matthew's 24 chapter. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations or Gentiles. And then, Jesus says, then the end will come. 
God's sovereign plan for history is occurring before our eyes. I'm not talking about date setting. I'm talking about the fact that Jesus proclaimed himself as Messiah to Israel. And Israel rejected their Messiah as a nation. There were, there were obviously remnants and exceptions. And after their hardness in 70 AD, the time of vengeance came upon Israel. That's what Jesus says here, upon Jerusalem. And he says the gospel will then be proclaimed to all the Gentile nations for a specific period in human history. And when that mission is fulfilled, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Paul takes up very similar themes and questions in his 11th chapter of Romans. In 9, 10, and 11, Donna read 9 to us today, when Paul is grieving over his brothers and sisters, the Jewish nation, according to his bloodline, And he's saying, I wish I could give up my own salvation for them to be saved. I'm so undone by their rejection of the Messiah and the loss of this nation to God. But then later on, a few verses later, a few chapters later, he's continuing on this theme for two chapters, for three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. He says this to the Gentiles. He warns his Gentile readers, you know, you've come to Christ and they've rejected Christ, but don't get proud about it. (laughs) God's able to bring them back, and he's not done. And he says this in verse 25 of chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, you Gentiles, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And then he says this phrase. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I think that that phrase correlates, and many other theologians do, with what Jesus said when he said, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And the mission to the Gentile nations with the gospel. Paul reveals that in God's plan, there is a period of time when Jewish people are hardened to a large degree, certainly as a nation, as a whole group, to Christ, while non-Jewish Gentiles are brought into the people of God, the one people of God. For those of you who are savvy to dispensationalism, I'm not talking about the church and Israel's two separate groups. I'm talking about one church, Jesus Christ, under one Messiah. But most of the people that I've read in in preparing for this message, as I've read Romans, are are Reformed people. They're, um, you know, from John Piper to Charles Spurgeon to Jonathan Edwards to John Calvin. So, I'm not going to get in too much into that micro-discussion and micro-disagreements about Israel and the church, except to say that God wants them both, Jew and Gentile. And he has come after both Jew and Gentile for his salvation. And so God reveals, though, that there is a sequence to these things, that in God's plan there is a period of time after the Jewish people rejected Messiah when they are hardened while non-Jewish Gentiles hear the gospel and come in. And you'll see different aspects where Jesus will say this. After the Roman centurion shows great faith, Jesus is astounded. He says, I've never seen any faith like this in all of Israel. I tell you, many people from the east and the west, far away, will take their place in the kingdom of heaven next to Abraham and Jacob and Isaac 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into utter darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is another iteration of this nation that he's preaching to in Jerusalem for those three years is going to reject him. And so the gospel will go in large measure to the Gentile nations. And yet God still has a plan for the nation of Israel that Paul is so grieved about in Romans 9 that will culminate in something wonderful. Verse 13 of, through uh, 29 of this chapter 11, he says, this is Romans 11, 13 through 29. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I want my ministry to be seen everywhere in order that somehow I might make my fellow Jews jealous and thus, thus save some of them. He wants the Jewish people around him to see all these Gentiles falling in love with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets and coming into a fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit and to say, wait, that's, that's mine. Those are my patriarchs. I didn't know it could be so good. I didn't know it could be so real. Those are my covenants. I, I want back in. That's what he wants. That's what Paul wants, to make them want Jesus. He says, I, I, I magnify my ministry in order to make, somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save, thus save some of them. For if their rejection of Jesus means the reconciliation of the world, that is, if, if when they rejected Christ, and the, if that meant that the gospel was gonna go out into the whole world to all the Gentile nations and bring all these, er, these Gentiles into Christ, he says, what will their acceptance mean? Like if it was so good, if they rejected him and God did such a great thing with that, what in the world, can you imagine what he can do with their acceptance of Christ? So he says, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Paul goes on. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, Paul says, they, Israel, in the flesh, national Israel by the blood, they are enemies from the standpoint of the gospel. They've rejected Christ. They're enemies for your sake, so the gospel has come to you. But, Paul says, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God says, I have made my covenant with Abraham. And yes, there is a spiritual Abraham, but within that spiritual Abraham that includes all the nations, there is also Abraham's bloodline. And I made a covenant with him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel. And I am going to see that she returns to me. That's what God is saying here. I am faithful, and I will not give up on those who I've decided I will be faithful to. John Murray, great reformed theologian from the, born in the 1800s and died in the 1950s, I believe. He founded Westminster Seminary, brilliant theologian, brilliant theologian. Couldn't, be, couldn't get someone probably farther away from Tim LaHaye left behind 
books or reading the newspaper to find out what's going on in Iraq to make sure we're in the right chapter of Revelation. That just was not him at all, okay? Couldn't get farther away from that stuff. Here's what he writes on this passage. There is no other alternative than to conclude that the proposition, all Israel shall be saved, is to be interpreted in terms of the fullness, the receiving, the ingrafting of Israel as a people. The restoration of Israel to gospel favor and blessing and the correlative turning of Israel from unbelief to faith and repentance. In a word, it is the salvation of the mass of Israel. That's the Israel, not the church, but the Israel that is rejecting Christ in Romans 9, 10, 11. That the apostle Paul affirms, Israel are both enemies and beloved at the same time. They are enemies as regard the gospel, beloved as regards election. Beloved, beloved, thus means, this is, this is where we're going with this. This is where we all begin to find hope. Beloved thus means that God has not suspended or rescinded his relation to Israel as his chosen people in terms of the covenants made with their fathers. My point is, God's faithfulness to Israel is the same faithfulness that he has towards you, brothers and sisters. He does not give up on his people. He won't give up on them, and that is a witness to the fact that he won't give up on you. God's love for this ragtag, hardened, rejecting bloodline of Israel is irrational, unfathomable, except in the fact that he is faithful to the core. God promises in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37, that only, it's, only if he would do away with the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea would Israel's fleshly descendants ever cease to be a nation or be rejected because of all they have done. And the reason why I say he's talking about Israel there is because there's, there's no other concept in, in Jeremiah for anything but a people who are hardened against him and rejecting him. It's not the transformation of Israel into a spiritual church. This is very hard to understand. I, I am not saying that we aren't all one people of God, Jew and Gentile in Christ. That's absolutely true. What I am saying is that God says, these people who have done such horrible things to me, there is no way I will reject their descendants. That is what he is saying. There's no other way to read that language if language has any meaning, as John Murray says in another place. And it is a fact not lost to many people, as I've read over these things over many years, that for almost 2,000 years, the Jewish people have been homeless, exiles across the world. And yet, unlike any other people or nation group in the history of the world who were so dispersed, they have never, ever lost their national or ethnic identity. And they, they, just so you don't misunderstand, they're not saved because of this. Jewish people aren't saved because of their ethnicity or because they have Jewish traditions or because they keep their communal identity as a Jewish people. They can only be saved the same way you and I can be saved, which is through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
My point is that God has promised, I will never let them stop being a nation. I will never let their memory or their bloodline be erased from this earth because I am going to preserve their descendants and bring them back to me one day. That's what he is saying through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. And that for 2,000 years, it's a miracle. It's a miracle of sociological, ethnic reality. This does not happen. Many people groups have been erased. You don't hear about the Akkadians anymore, right? The Sumerians anymore, right? You don't hear about the Philistines anymore. Nobody talks about Russian Philistines or German Akkadians. They're gone. I mean, their bloodline's probably somewhere here and there all, all, all through the, the tentacles. of. But, but the memory of who they are as a nation, it's gone. That's what happens when you kick a nation out of their homeland. By two generations or 200 years, they're gone. It's only not happened to one people, Israel. But that's what God said he would do. I will always preserve them. And what, what Murray is trying to say through all this, what Jonathan Edwards and John Piper and Charles Spurgeon and D. Lloyd Moton Jones, I've, I've gotten this busload of Reformed theologians because I, I was trained in a dispensational seminary and I don't quite know what to do with all this thing. So I'm, I'm listening to all these other guys on the other side of the aisle of, of orthodoxy come along and say, well, God really cares about ethnic Israel and he has a plan. And that's what Paul is saying. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, and so in this way, all Israel will be saved. Listen, there's a reason I'm talking about all this technical stuff, and I, I hope you'll be able to see it if you don't see it now. And many of these theologians believe that what Paul is alluding to is not the trickling in of Jewish people over 2,000 years, but a future conversion of Israel as a nation basically in mass, not everyone in particular, because not everyone in particular has rejected the Messiah in Paul's perspective. But he's talking about Israel as a people. And he says that there is a wholeness to their return to God. And this is what the Old Testament scriptures prophesy in Isaiah 66, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Zechariah 12, and others seem to promise. And, and listen, if you don't believe this, that Israel's gonna have a national ethnic conversion towards the return of Christ, that is okay. And if I'm wrong about it, I do not hold this tightly. As Wayne Grudem says, I love what he says, the future is hard to predict, particularly because it hasn't happened yet. And so we, we want to hold these things loosely and never break fellowship over these details. But when I come back to Jesus' prophecy that Jerusalem will be trampled on until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, and that, that then this gospel would go into all the nations, and then the end would come. And Paul's saying that Israel has undergone a hardening, at least in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come into Christ, and then all Israel will be saved. I, I don't want to try to read the Bible in one hand again and have the world news in the other. That's really dangerous. But I will admit I am provoked that Jesus would speak of an ending point for the trampling of Jerusalem and associate with the Gentiles' mission coming to completion. And here we are 2,000 years since the Jews were first expelled when this trampling started. And suddenly, in 1948, in a day, Israel becomes a nation. In 1967, Jerusalem was taken back from Gentile control after 2,000 years. It belongs to Israel by ethnicity again. 
I want to be very cautious. But, but in the general scheme of what I've been reading to you today, what I've been saying to you today, whatever the significance of these particular historical developments over the last few decades, we have, from all that we read in Scripture, a picture of God not wondering what to do with this world, not aloof, winding up the clock of creation and then going off for a nap to not care about it. We have a picture of God sovereignly orchestrating world history to achieve his plan for the salvation of both Jew and Gentile, to bring them both into one church and into one savior, Jesus Christ. And and so I'm bringing all this to you, not to try to start debates on eschatology, and last things, and the timing of his return, but because I want to seek to assure you that Christ's delay in coming for 2,000 years should not be a cause to disbelieve his coming. I want to offer you an option to see in Scripture that God is doing things just as he's planned. Jesus does not, we've said this before, I'll say it again, Jesus does not want us arguing about dates. Whenever someone says Jesus is going to return and this, I just, I want to run. You know, I just want to turn it off. I, I, it's so clear again and again. I, I, I don't think we should ignore eschatological things or ignore those studies, but it's so clear in Scripture that God does not want us arguing about dates. He wants us focused on being found ready for whenever he chooses to come. The Lord made it famously clear before his death that no one would know the day or the hour of his return, but that it would be like a thief in the night. So be ready, loving me and loving my people, hoping in me. He said that the week of his death. A few days after he rises from the dead, the disciples brought it up again. In Acts 1, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, I know before you died, you didn't know the day or the hour, but now you're risen. So are you going to do it now? It's like my son, he's waiting for a video game in the mail as a prize for completing his soccer. He's like, Dad, will you check the UPS? Has it come yet? Not yet, buddy. Three minutes later, can you check again? You know, they're just, okay, Lord, now? He, they say to him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And listen, Jesus' answer is, is profound here. He does not deny that there is a future for Israel, but he tells them to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the whole world. Just what Paul said, right? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Will you restore the kingdom of Israel? He doesn't say, no, there's no such thing. Israel's replaced. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed for his own, by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Bring it to my people here. They're going to, some will believe, most will reject, but just keep pushing out to Alaska, to Japan, keep going because it's time to go to all the nations and create one new man, Jew and Gentile. And Jesus is at the Father's right hand and he is already ruling over human history from the highest seat of authority in the universe. He is doing what he said he would do. He is gathering from every tongue, tribe, and nation a people to himself. And then the fullness of the Gentiles, when he decides, will have come to him. That is the elect from all the earth 
will have all come to him as he wishes. And when the fullness of Israel, whatever that means, is likewise brought to salvation through the same gospel that the Gentiles receive, then Christ will come to raise his people and judge the world. That is why he waits. Because he is in no hurry to bring judgment. He is in a hurry, so to speak, to bring mercy, if I might put it that way, through you, his people, proclaiming his message. He is in a hurry to save. This is why Peter says, after pointing out how people will mock and scoff at the delay in Christ's return, he says they're going to they're gonna scoff at this and say, everything's gone on just like it has from the beginning. Nothing's changed. He's not coming. Peter says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, toward the world, not wishing that any should perish. I'm sorry, just for carefulness with scripture. I said toward the world. Peter says he's patient towards you, and I believe by implication, Peter means he's patient towards the world that needs him. He says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's why he's waiting. He does not want to bring judgment. He will, but he would rather bring salvation. And so he is waiting to find more and more and more people. C.S. Lewis follows this reasoning of Peter as he speaks to the unbelieving in his apologetic, famous apologetic for Christianity called Mere Christianity. And he's explaining to his unbelieving audience why Jesus has not yet returned. Why is he taking so long? He says, we can guess why he is delaying. I think Peter gives us better than a guess. We can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. I, I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited until the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on to the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance it will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. 
But I close with this. The faithfulness of a God who will not abandon his people. Because brothers and sisters, God has opened your hearts to him. For you who know him, his return is not to be feared, but desired. It, it is not simply thought about and wondered about. It is to be hoped for, to be longed for, to be prayed for, because he is done with your judgment. For you, the day of judgment was 2,000 years ago. And this is where I want to conclude. Could I ask the communion team to pass out the, the elements? See, we can have hope that Jesus is going to return, not only because we can see from Scripture that he is sovereign over human history or because we understand what Jew and Gentile mean. We can have hope, confidence that Jesus is going to return because at the core of God is faithfulness. That is the essential character of God, faithfulness. And to return to you, to complete the work he started in you, to deliver you, his bride, to come for you, his bride, is the only faithful path for him. Faithfulness is at the very core of his heart. For all eternity, the Father has been faithful to the Son, the Son has been faithful to the Father, and they have both been faithful to the Spirit who has been faithful to them. Faithfulness is God's essential being. And he has given us all kinds of metaphors for this in the world. In John 14, Jesus uses marriage language to explain his commitment to return for us. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. The loving faithfulness of Jesus is at the very core of why we should hope in his coming. Simply, he's a good God. He is faithful. He will not lie. He will not give up on you. He is faithful. That was our only hope to begin with. And we, under, we understand intuitively, don't we, that faithfulness is, is in the DNA of the universe that, that, and that it's meant to express him. Maybe we don't understand it fully, but, but just follow me here. Every romance story that resonates, and I know most romance stories, they don't show the real thing, right? We have such shattered romantic themes in our own lives, but, but there's a reason why these stories resonate with us. It's because... They're expressions of the faithfulness of God that is at the core of reality. Because the gospel is a gospel of a husband redeemer being faithful to his bride no matter what. 
that faithfulness is what all of creation was meant for and what all of creation is groaning to see fulfilled. I was watching The Princess Bride, Friday Night with the Kids. If you know The Princess Bride movie, you know it's a story about true love. Wesley is shocked that Buttercup did not believe he would come back for her. He says, why didn't you wait for me? It's true love, he says. Of course I'm coming back for you. Isn't it weird that everybody gets that? Like, no one has to say, what does he mean? That's confusing. Well, of course, if it's true love, he's going to come back from her. I don't have to teach William to steal cookies, and I don't have to teach William to get that, that true love comes back for his bride. Later, Wesley is killed. Well, he's mostly killed. Miracle Max is this character who, who can bring him back to life, or mostly bring back to life, right? Because he's partly dead. So Miracle Max asks, asks Wesley why he needs to come back to life. What's so important about coming back to life? He says, true love, he groans. And I said to Jen, I think it was in that moment. Are you here, Jen? I, I think I said, to, what did I say to you in that moment? Do you remember? I said, that's the gospel. There it is. It's the gospel. That's why this story moves us. At the heart of reality is a God of faithful love who will not abandon us. Every divorce, every painful relational break with one who was once a close friend, every church split, every betrayal that turns a brother or sister into an enemy hurts because we know that faithfulness is what we were all made for, that faithfulness is at the core of what reality is. Every parent and child know this too. Matthew hurt himself a few days ago. He hurt himself bad in the playground. He's doing fine now. But, but man, when he, when he fell down, it really hurt. He hit his stomach on one of these little stool-like trails, and he's just hunched over and crying out. Matthew has the most agonizing cry. It's just so full-belted. Oh, it's the, it's the hardest to hear of all my kids' cries, I think. I didn't ask why he would cry out to me. He cried out to me with this ache and this groan and this pain. I didn't say, why is he looking at me? It's what should be, right? A, a, a child should cry out to his father, and a father should run to his child when the child cries out to him. I ran to him in distress. I brought him close, and I held on to him. And I thought as I did that, this is how I can know that Jesus is coming back for me. I, I can't abandon Matthew because God's put that in me as a parent because that's an expression of who he is. That's an expression of his image. He comes to his children. He doesn't abandon, and he's not going to abandon me because that's contrary to the very nature of God. The very nature of ultimate being is faithfulness. So in communion this morning, <laughs> we have the greatest sign of that faithfulness that we could ever hope for until he comes again. Can you hear that maybe in a way you never had before? We eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul says, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you ever think that the second coming is in communion? His life poured out for us 
is more than forgiveness. It's a promise. It's a pledge. Until I come, remember this, because I'm coming. Don't give up. Hold on to this, because I'm coming. It's a sign of his sure and sealed and irrevocable commitment and call. It's a sign to hold on to until he comes again. This is what we proclaim to ourselves and one another in communion until he comes. His blood, his body poured out for our sins, his judgment already taken away from us. And he's coming again to bring us into a loving union with him and his father that will have no portion, fraction, element of imperfection. It will be beautiful and holy and loving and healed and comprehensively perfect. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is faithful. He is coming for us. He will not abandon us. And this body and this blood poured out for us is his, so to speak, infinitely more worthy engagement ring. 